be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade he'd let us in knows where we've been in his octopus's garden in the shade I'd ask my friends to come and see We would be warm below the storm in our little hideaway beneath the waves. <laughs> Good afternoon. You're on Hot Water Cornbread Kentucky Food Radio here on Lexington Community Radio with your hosts, Weta Michael and Rona Roberts. <laughs> And I'm Chris Michael, and we're here with two special guests today. Rona, take it away. Hi, Chris. Hi, Wida. Hi, Rona. Hello, special guests. Hi there. Thing one and thing two. Yeah, they could, they, they, they're going to get to talk, and then we're going to introduce them. Um, we, we're glad to be with everyone today. I'm fumbling with my microphone here, which likes to fall. Okay. Um, at Hot Water Cornbread, we like to... Um, review our best bite or sip of the past week and make each other uh, jealous. Um, so I'm going. I'm, I've I've already had a little pre-check in on a couple of these. I'm going to start with Weeda. What was your best bite or my sip this best week? bite? Um, well, I we did a little dinner with Jeff over at Blue Door this week, and he did some. So I'm calling them Blue Door smoked mussels. They were <sighs> fantastic. And uh, he did did those over a seared sea scalp, really, really good. But and I loved those as much as I loved those. He made a smoked duck sausage. It was killer. Did I he? Gotta he say, made Jeff, the sausage. He made the sausage. I saw. A, I he saw brought a it out in the big guy. rings yes. from the. Um, he roast. We pan roasted it, and he brought it out in the big rings, and then cut it up, and it was dizzy, dizzyingly good. You know mm. how when something's so good, you're like, hmm. I mean, you start to freak out a little bit and eat too much of it it was that good it was so good with a little beer to boot it was quite delicious let's have local guest one tell us his best bite or sip and then we have louisville guest one as well but we'll get to him in a minute i would say my best bite came saturday morning got away from brunch for just a minute and walked over to the market and got our first 15 pounds of ramps and spring garlic Walked back in the door, threw about three or four of those ramps on the grill, smeared an avocado on a piece of rye toast, covered it with chopped grilled ramps and some soft scrambled eggs, oh, wow. and that has to make my week right there. Was that Hoot Al Holler ramps? That was. Oh, yes. I got a couple of bunches, too. It's a good thing I got there before you. I heard you yes, ordered, was, you know, quite a few. I'll, I'll take them all. Share, share uh, yeah. it with you. I'll take it all. You greedy. Okay. Yeah, ramps. Okay, Chris Michael. Um, I had a uh, taste of the bourbon that I... Hadn't <laughs> this had morning before, just this morning. Actually. <laughs> it was. Uh, is that bad? Is that bad, Rona? <laughs> it's uh, Je- Jefferson's Reserve, um, aged in Groth Cabernet barrels. Oh, good. really good. We and, like Groth know, wine, especially. That the, um, the, something about the Cabernet barrels really added like a real fruity character to the bourbon. Mm. Really enjoyed it. So that's that's a that was a good sip this morning. <laughs> 
Yeah, we all kind of want Chris's job. <laughs> what <laughs> job? We have a, right, what job? What, what, what? <laughs> and guest number two, what about your best bite? Or I, had, uh, I had two really good bites this week uh, that were kind of hand in hand and actually came one right after the other. We, uh, we were doing some different charcuterie uh, at the restaurant and uh, we had a finocchiona which is like a yeah. fennel salumi yeah. that Ooh. so it took like four or five months to make it so it was like that hurry up and wait kind of thing you know uh-huh. so we had uh the fennel salumi uh with like big fennel flavors rolled in fennel pollen uh so it took four months of like eager wanting to eat that you know uh. so there's a big reward when you can taste it and you're like all right this definitely doesn't suck you know uh-huh. so, uh, it, was, it was really tasty so uh and the other one is uh last time i went home my mother had uh, split a cow with somebody down the street, and she didn't know what to do with the beef heart. So I took that, and we did a pastrami beef heart, uh, and like rolled that across the grill and sliced it nice and thin. Yeah, and it was super tasty, mm. really good. Like mm. had like big, big beef flavor with that slight gaminess to it. Yeah, mm. it was really tasty. So yum. But, so those were, my, those were my two. I think with those two descriptions, Rona, you better introduce our guests. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we've given away a little bit of the secret, which is that they're both chefs. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. No, the, chef, no, that's my cousin Luigi that did the beef heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the restaurant was mentioned and the brunch was mentioned, you know, so um, we are very happy to have. I'll, I'll do one and you can do one. Okay. One, two. Okay. Uh, we're so happy. We have two chefs from 21C Museum Properties here with us today. Jonathan Searle, I'll introduce you first. Jonathan is the executive chef of Lockbox, which is the new restaurant from award-winning 21C Museum Hotels Group. It is in the brand new 21C Museum Hotel downtown in Lexington, corner of Lime and no upper Mark, upper, upper, upper and Main with upper twisted some twisted streetlights out front. You can't miss it, and it's right across from us, our signature um, landmark, <laughs> Deep Hole. Um, provokes deep thought. So after graduating from Kentucky Christian University in 2008, Jonathan followed his passion for cooking. He began his culinary career at Dudley's on Short and Bellini's in Lexington. So you're back on Main, near near your old Bellini stomach. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And later at Grail House in Louisville. Are you a Kentuckian, Jonathan? Not originally. Okay. Uh, I claim it now as home. I don't think I'll, I'm from up Central Ohio originally, but uh, uh-huh. been down here for most of my adult life. Yeah, we we we'll take we'll you. take you. Yeah. You can be a native. You, you can be a native, man. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so in in 2001, um, Jonathan joined the team at Proof on Main, which is the restaurant at the uh, 21C Hotel in Louisville. He quickly rose through the ranks from line cook to sous chef to executive sous chef. He helped the restaurant earn numerous accolades, including a place on Bon Appetit's list of 10 best hotels for food lovers. And then in 2016, he came here. I think actually you might have come in 2015. Yeah, I snuck in right in October. Yeah, I think well before the restaurant lockbox, the the new shiny, highly (laughs) lauded restaurant lockbox opened. Um, Jonathan came to Lexington, back to Lexington. And... Um, at Lockbox, he showcases his commitment to sourcing local, high-quality seasonal ingredients as well as thoughtful yet simple preparations and techniques. Welcome, Jonathan. Glad Good to, to be here. All right. And Jonathan, for those of you who are wondering, was the ramp and avocado toast guy. Yeah, ramp, and the market was the Lexington Farmer's Market, which opened formally on Saturday. And then joining Jonathan today, we have Mike Baja. 
Did I say that correct? Uh, Vida. 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 So Mike Vida. Mike is one year, almost to the day, anniversary of being the executive chef of Proof on Main in Louisville at 21C Hotel there. And I think, Mike, you were telling us that you, you started uh, there two weeks before Derby last year. Is that about right? Yeah, Maybe three yeah. weeks yeah, it was, before? It was about two, three weeks just before Derby. Um, and luckily, Jonathan was there to have my back and show me around. <laughs> so the two of you yeah. bonded through this, yeah, this yeah. experience. So it was a bit of a trial by fire, but it went really well. So, Well, Mike uh, graduated from the Pennsylvania Culinary Institute in 2007. He worked as chef de partie with, at restaurant Gordon Ramsay. He, you're going to have to tell us a little Gordon Ramsay story. Like, you know, did he yell at you? Is he crazy? As crazy in person as he is. On, on the screen. He worked at the London Hotel in New York City. And after three years of working alongside Gordon Ramsay, he then um, worked at multiple restaurants up and down the East Coast, including Craigie on Main in Cambridge, Massachusetts, one of my all-time favorite places in the world. And then in 2014, you joined Michael Mina Group in San Francisco, and you opened all kinds of restaurants there as a corporate sous chef. It says here that you opened seven restaurants in one year. Yeah, um, so we did, we did a lot of openings, uh, you know, in the last few years. Uh, definitely shaved a few years off my life, yeah. uh, opening that many restaurants in one year, but it was a great time. So. What brought you back to Louisville? What brought you to Kentucky? I mean, you're from Ohio, is that right? Yeah, so originally from Northeast Ohio, um, and, you know, I wanted to get back east. You know, it was fun being on the West Coast and things like that, but I wanted to come back east and, you know, get back in tune with uh, some of my roots and also get back, you know, I love the idea of like things being in season, you know, being out mm -hmm. West and like talking to your farmers and things and you ask what's in season and they say anything you want, you know, that's just not a reality, you know? So I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to long for a tomato, you know, and I wanted to long yeah. for all the things that were in season. So, um, get back in tune with, uh, what's coming out of the ground as well as like, you know, come back towards the family and things like that. So, yeah. Wonderful. Well, welcome. It's a pleasure to have both of you here and, um, Especially to have so much culinary talent in one room. It's like, oh. I know. It's I'm great. hoping something just kind of rubs off on me. <laughs> well, one of the questions I think Rona and I both have when we're talking to people is like, what was it? And, and, and Mike, since you're talking, we'll start with you and then we'll move to Jonathan. So you grew up in central Ohio on a farm. Is that right? Um, not specifically on a farm, but I was surrounded, in a rural surrounded community? by farmers. Yeah, it was a small little town, uh, Kinsman, Ohio. So. And what kind of led you into cooking professionally? You grew up with a mom. It sounds like your mom loves to cook. Yeah. She's buying whole animals, buying whole <laughs> steers and, you know, yeah. freezing them or whatever. But go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, mom was always in the kitchen, you know, cooking and doing things like that. But a big, big part of it was my Oma. You know, my, my grandmother on my father's side um, was always you know, in the kitchen, cooking, cooking, having me at her side and things like that. And that what was, was a, one of your, what are you, one of your, what is one of your most distinctive food memories from what she would make? You know, as, uh, as basic as it sounds, every time I smell, uh, like just a simple chicken stock with mirepoix in it, it yeah. takes me back to being in her kitchen. Mm. Um, you know, as on a very basic level as for food memory and sense sensory and things like that. So that's the biggest one, but she also made Rilladen, um, which is basically, uh, Thin beef, mm -hmm. you know, rolled with, you get a little bit of bacon inside there, some nice onions, rolled that up and then braised and like, almost like a jus, mm -hmm. uh, super tasty. Um, so, and those are the two biggest ones or pierogies for that matter, you know, are big. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I guess that's the biggest food memory, you know, having those. Man, I love pierogi. Oh. <laughs> Just to jump forward for one, uh, one little minute here. Do those things infuse the menu now at 
in any way behind yeah, the scenes somewhere? Abs- absolutely. I mean, for brunch, we just did a, you know, I grew up knowing it as bird's nest um, from what she called it, uh, but it's just toad in a hole. Uh, and that bled into our brunch menu just for Easter uh, just a few weeks ago. So there's definitely some of her influence, you know, and like the, the cooking that, you know, ends up on a plate. You know, obviously mine didn't look exactly like hers, but uh, <laughs> uh, there's definitely that inspiration there that bleeds into the menu. Yeah, so. absolutely. Pa- part of your palate memory anyway. You can't get rid of it even if you want to get rid of it. Yeah. And uh, we do playful things. You know, I'm really big on, you know, as far as taking something from your childhood as a food memory mm-hmm. and then trying to... Um, move it forward move it forward so you know it's playful for the guest as well you know we Jonathan it's been on the menu for a minute but Jonathan saw it as well where we do uh, a pop tart so it's kind of like a childhood favorite but we do an adult version with chicken liver mousse and we change out the filling (laughs) seasonally with different things so it's like that childhood memory but as an adult version of it yeah Sounds good. Ooh, chicken liver make, mousse yeah, pop tart. M- make make that gluten free, and I'll never leave the restaurant. <laughs> Jonathan, what about you? So you grew up in Ohio. Yeah, uh, kind of weirdly enough, we don't have too dissimilar of stories. Honestly, um, my family was we're small town central Ohio, about a half hour out of Columbus, and you know my dad was a, a bit. I, I just found this out recently because he retired but and seeing him around all of his people and all these backstories on him that i'd never heard of, i mean he was just basically a good old country farm boy good old boy so like that kind of was i'm not but that was brought on me very early <laughs> uh, so there was a like a lot of hunting a lot of gathering a lot of like stopping on the side of the road picking asparagus going mushroom hunting with the dog mm-hmm. a lot of fish a lot of these and then you know when we kill a deer we'd uh, dress it in the garage and then the next day mom and dad would have the KitchenAid out making sausage and I you know it would gross me and my sister out when we we're like four <laughs> years old but like so everything was really um, about do it yourself and it took a while for that to come back around but that was one of those things that definitely as it as I decided this is what I wanted to do with myself uh, cooking that is that all of those inspirations kind of came back to the surface from the subconscious. And it was like, oh, this all makes sense. Like we were just forced to be around it as kids and we all had a great time, but it was always with the whole family around the table mm-hmm. and taking care of each other. I mean, we'd all prep together, then we'd eat together. The grown-ups would drink and laugh and play cards, and then we'd all get together to wash the dishes for these weekend events and whatnot. So, you know, as we get older, we get they grow and grow because like we'd all have girlfriends and sisters have boyfriends, so the, the table just kept getting bigger. But um, I think on a bigger picture, it's just it's really about even more than being a chef, just the hospitality aspect of like gathering around the table, mm-hmm. and, uh, taking care of one another. So that's where. That's where this all really came in. That's why a lot of my cooking, I think, is about nostalgia. Is about It's not so much about the next clever thing, but um, reconnecting. Mike said it too. Like I think a lot of us feel that way, that are lucky enough to have those upbringings, that uh, just reconnecting to a lot of fond memories and uh, palate, uh, mental palate memories that... Uh, spark something inside when you eat mm. when you eat something well, some things are timeless and i would argue that great chicken broth is yeah probably the first one of those <laughs> yeah. i mean you have to have it to have unless you're vegetarian you have to have great chicken broth to have good food i think yeah. uh, all kinds of good food and although there are many ways to make it it has to be well done it has to be made well so um i don't even think of those things as nostalgic as much as just they never stop you know they go on forever and they go on and through the foreseeable future i guess 
Well, one question I had for both of you is, is Mike, maybe we'll start with you, is what, who, so in, in your personal life, it, se- it seems like your mother and your grandmother were big influences on the way you thought and experienced food. What about your professional career? Who would you say are your biggest influences? Um, you know, you know, I ended up in, uh, in New York straight out of culinary school and worked for Gordon Ramsay, who was a great experience, but a big part of it was the CDC there at the time was Marcus Walker. Mm-hmm. I had been with Gordon for quite a few years and also just kind of took me under the wing and, you know, seen, you know, whatever potential I had at the time and kind of like, um, you know, and he did a great job of like kind of mentoring me and, you know, uh, kicking me off the station when it needed to happen and, and, you know, bringing me back up as well. So he was a big part of my career, you know, I was there for a few years and he definitely like, um, showed me proper food, gave me a great palate. Um, so he was a big part of like, as far as being in the kitchen. Um, and then I had some other great friends, um, Will Shorkoff and Sharon, his wife, like kind of took me out. And like when I was in New York, they took me to a lot of great restaurants and like cooked at home for me and things like that and helped develop my palate just from an eating standpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was in New York, I didn't have much money to do anything <laughs> except for survive. <laughs> right. um, and they kind of took me in and like gave me a palate in terms of uh, eating and teaching me about food and, and like taking me above and beyond of just being in New York or, you know, being back home in the farm country or whatever it may be. Like, they really like expanded my palate to everything that was out there. You know, she's from Singapore. So it's, she kind of like expanded that aspect of it as well from a home cooking standpoint, you mm-hmm. know, which I never got to see. That was never an option. That was a part of what of what you were looking yeah, at in Northeast North, Ohio, right? Yeah, exactly. So <clears throat> it, was, it was great. They really got to ex- expand my palate that way. Well, that's neat. What about you, Jonathan? Uh, let's see. I'd say professionally speaking, my biggest influence and where th- kind of changed the game for me was uh, working for Levon Wallace. Uh, he was the chef at 21C Louisville the second year I came in. So I came in, it was still the original chef that had been there for like six years, Mike Paley. And then this guy came in, this this large, looming Hispanic character. <laughs> it couldn't be two guys more opposite <laughs> one each other than Mike <laughs> no. Bailey and Levon Wallace. Yeah. and uh, He's like the Wookiee of... Cuisine, <laughs> Levon. Yeah, Levon's probably at least six four, two ninety, three hundred pound uh, Hispanic man from LA. Incredibly like quick moving and like animated and passionate. And uh, I'd worked for some really good chefs at that point, up until that point, that I really respect and taught me a lot of cool things. But he was kind of the guy who um, pushed harder than anyone else I knew and held me more accountable than anyone else I knew. And you know, the first year or two, honestly, we didn't really get along that much. Like I was the punk young sous chef that thought he might know a thing or two. And he was, you know, the chef that had to deal with me. But like, as we grew, like a lot of things really just gelled and like we became really close friends over time. And that really added a new depth to it because it allowed us to talk about things, uh, not just being a chef, but a lot of that in um, beyond just employee to employer standpoint but like becoming friends allowed us to like talk, talk about the future talk about little intricate parts of like what this game is being in hospitality and whatnot and uh you know help me clear clear an idea of what i might want to do with my future instead of just thinking about what the next step is being a chef whatever but how how you plan your life if you want to do that have any longevity in this so uh yeah levon wallace there you go Oh, they both all sound like wonderful influences. One question I have for you. Are you guys, do you, are you married? Do you have children? Nope. No uh, on Jonathan's part, everybody. He's available. <laughs> not available. But not, not available. Not, 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 not available. Not, <laughs> not, not available. Okay, we stand corrected. 
Mike, uh, what about you? I have a girlfriend that I met here in, in Louisville when I moved out here. Uh, oh, see, and, Kentucky is good for that. Yeah, so. Kentucky woman. Yeah, so I heard that song and you know, one, one suddenly appeared. So <laughs> that was great. Um, so no, uh, I got a girl back home and, and that's it. Uh, and a dog, Rufus. So. <laughs> well, I think it'll be interesting. Like one of the challenges of being a chef professionally is as your life progresses and you begin starting families, imparting those food memories to your family in separating your family's culinary culture from your professional life can be tricky and not letting it take second shrift so so Wita, you and chris how have you done that? i don't know that we've done it that well <laughs> <laughs> do you have do you have kids we have one child willa she's 11 but um it's hard. It's, it's, I think the hardest thing is just listening to the two of you talk about how strongly you feel emotionally about food and what you do and, and how you want to welcome people and create these experiences around the table. Uh, I think the hardest thing about being a chef is you do that for everybody else and you have a tendency not to do it for yourself. That is. And your own sure. family. And so it's been a struggle in my professional life. I'll tell you, it's hard. It's a hard thing to balance. Yeah, I mean, and I've always said, too, I think you'd be able to, the husbands or wives or girlfriends or whatever, maybe you could actually write a book about the chefs and how to deal with them and how to, like, what to expect when they come home, you know, because it's definitely, it's hard to separate that lifestyle between the two, you know. Um, yeah, I've always said I just need a wife. <laughs> <laughs> what is no. that <laughs> No, I'm just saying that I hear that all the time. I'm not challenging you here, Mike, but I've, I hear that all the time is like, in many, in, in our situation, Chris and I have worked together since the day we met. We were partners at the Culinary Institute of America on their first day of school there. And then Chris is from New York, and I basically got him to come down to Kentucky wow. and never leave. <laughs> that happens. I keep it. <laughs> so, see, we get our claws into you. Yeah. But, no, it's hard. I just think it's hard. It's, I mean, in our situation, we were very lucky that we live where we work and are able to try to juggle our home and our restaurant all at one time on one property. Um, well, so um, David, Momofuku David um, right. Chang, wrote a piece just in the last week or so about things that are going to kill restaurants. And oh, yeah. I saw did that. you see that? Mm -hmm. And this has been, it's been a worry of mine for a long time. My, my great interests are in how we grow a sustainable food system, a regional food system, so that if we have to, we can feed ourselves fantastic food. Everybody can have some. And chefs lead the way in showing that. But if chefs are killing themselves um, with the work and um, the difficulties of not getting to have Thanksgiving with your family because you just yeah. made Thanksgiving for 300 other people, <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't, it's hard to see how that's sustainable. So I've, it's, it's been a worry for me. Bet, you guys look incredibly healthy. I know. And, they look great. Yeah, they do. Like, wow. They do. wow. <laughs> 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 this is the dim lighting. Yeah. <laughs> it's the small, tiny, hot box that we're in. Well, you're listening to Lexington Community Radio, and this is Hot Water Cornbread. I'm Weta Michael. We're here with Rona Roberts and Chris Michael. We're going to take a quick break and come back and play a little word association. WLXL is supported by the Lexington Fayette County Health Department. The health department is a recognized leader in health promotion, health protection, personal health care, and the prevention of disease. They're located at 650 Newtown Pike and can be reached by phone at 859-252-2371. For more information, visit their website, lexingtonhealthdepartment.org. 
WLXL recognizes the health department as one of our founding community partners. Suckers walk, money talks, but it can't touch my three-lock box. Kentucky Food Radio this afternoon. I'm with my wonderful co-hosts, chefs, Weta Michael and Chris Michael. I am surrounded by chefs. It's kind of like <laughs> heaven. I'm just wishing that we could, I could just li- listen to them now talk about food for an- the next few hours. Our guests are Jonathan Searle, who is executive chef at Lockbox Restaurant in Lexington, and Mike Vida, of uh, Proof on Main in Louisville. Both of these are 21C Museum um, hotel restaurants and, of course, open for all of the rest of us to enjoy as as well. And we haven't said, I don't think, but both restaurants, um, although they both have octopus, as might have been noted from our opening song. uh, And delicious octopus. They're primarily... I mean, there's a lot of orientation toward what grows locally and toward... um, the food that's grown by Laura Lee Brown and Steve Wilson, um, who are owners of the properties too, so gives that's one of the distinctions, at least that I think of from the outside, um, about your restaurants. So, Weta has some um, some really good topics. <laughs> well, well, Derby is you know we're beginning racing season here this week, um, and I know in Louisville we were making we were we were making fun of poor Mike having coming. To- having ventured into the Bluegrass State two weeks before Derby last year. But the two of you, uh, Jonathan led you through. <laughs> so now you're on your own, kid. But uh, what kind of what kind of numbers are you do you cook for during Derby week? And I'm assuming that's your busiest week at Proof. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So 
One of my questions is, and I know I know that at Lockbox you're going to do a fair amount of banquet cooking too, Jonathan, and that you have. But one of my, my one of my questions, and Mike will start with you, is how what's your favorite banquet dish? Like it's very difficult to cook for large large groups of people. What do you like to put on a menu for a large group? Yeah, I mean it's one of those things where you don't want to sacrifice product, so you just want to cook smarter and understand the <laughs> right. things that you're working with and things like that. So um, one of the things that we did last year um, that was really successful is we did. Uh, we like bringing in whole animals and, and fish and things like that. So we brought in these monster uh, halibuts. Mm. Uh, we were bringing in like 98-pound halibuts, wow. which, which is a three-cutting board fish <laughs> So uh, when you're breaking it down. So uh, we would break those down and do like a caper raisin crust on there uh, where you make like a caper raisin, caper raisin butter, hit some breadcrumbs on it, and you can kind of spread that across the whole loin or fish. And then uh, it's, a real, it's a pretty resilient fish when you treat it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's great for big groups and things like that um, to where you could do it. You can do it family style and do whole loins that they're kind of breaking bread and uh, taking down pieces. How do you the do the caper raisin spread? So tell people real, real so quickly how it goes it's together. Like, it's like a, uh, it's basically a compound butter mm-hmm. uh, to where we're, ta- we're taking uh, room temp butter and whipping that with um, golden raisins, capers. So you get this salty, sweet aspect. Yeah. Um, throwing a little bit of some, sour. Throwing some breadcrumb in there. Uh, and that'll brulee up real nice when you put it under. Um, you can hit it with a torch and, brew it, and brulee it that way, or you can put it in the oven under the broil and like let that kind of crisp up. So you get texture as well as like a sweet and savory kind of aspect to it. Oh, that so. sounds really Does good. Does a restaurant have a, an oven big enough to put a 98-pound halibut? Uh, we'd have to break it down into some sheet yeah. trays. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Jonathan? You got some ideas for this racing season for uh, large groups. Large groups. Uh, you just did a 50-group person luncheon today. Yeah. Well, I think that it's definitely important to, like Mike was saying, to stay focused. Like you can have a lot of grand ideas of something that, what would be great on a plate, but there's just a, there's a little dynamic difference when you're trying to do a lot at once. So uh, again, kind of similar, we will take, I like doing dishes that will hold, that they've got some staying power as far as the time it takes to sell or present. Present all of them at one time. No spoon 50 to 100 of them at a time. (laughs) We've been, um, we've been doing, taking hold, like we're bringing in animals from Woodland Farm, bringing pigs and uh, we'll take the whole loins and put a nice hand brine on those and roast them pretty much mid-rare so they're almost ready to slice, so that we have the, the whole loin out and a lot of those going and We'll take so right at the at the time to sell it, you know, ten minutes out as you're preparing everything else, we can just slice it up into nice fat medallions and let it just that little bit of heat that it picks up as you're just warming it through again mm. gets it where it needs to be. Mm. I, I honestly like using bigger pieces of meat because they're gonna hold a little better. Um, but honestly, really just keeping it to two or three ingredients, like we're bringing in some night and, and making sure they're just well sourced and well taken care of. Like we got a guy in Louisville. Uh, that started, got an Austrian stone mill and started milling a lot oh, of yeah, things for us. Yeah, uh, Tom Edwards is Cute. great. Love him. Yeah, we you started know. using him as well. It's beautiful stuff. It's yeah. beautiful. We're so excited put, about it. So yeah. you put like a nice, a really nice smoked grit, a great loin, and uh, you know just a great green tomato jam or something, and like that's it. Let, gives you all of your flavor profiles mm-hmm. that you want and allows it to be something that even, even a basic cook could probably. Or could put together as long as each little piece is done well. And I think the tip there for everybody listening at home is when you make pork loin, don't overcook it. Yeah, don't <laughs> like, overcook it. <laughs> pork loin is a very delicate meat, yeah. right? Yeah. It's, it's interesting how people are always like, 
cooking that poor pork within its inch of its life. Uh, well, that's the scary thing about bone. cooking those like really simple things is like they've got to be just right because if any one mm. component's off, mm. then the whole dish just falls apart. Cause there's, just, there's nothing to hide that's behind. True. Like if, if you did something wrong to the octopus, most of us wouldn't know. We would blame it on the octopus, not on you. <laughs> <laughs> no, when you mess with the pork loin in Kentucky, then you know, you've got some people oh, who think they know something yeah. about the pork loin, right? Wait, are you going to ask your question about the least favorite ingredient? Yes, but go ahead. <laughs> I really, I love this question. We had one of her. The, questions. I thought those last two questions would be our our last question and answers. That we'll quit grilling you oh. after that. But no, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I we had done some some advanced questions, and one was, "What is your least favorite ingredient to work with?" And I, I assume this means one that you must work with anyway. Is that Right. Well, some of us, I think everyone, I think you guys are probably able to pretty much choose which ingredients you're putting on your menu now or mm-hmm. what, you're, what you're working with. Do you have one, Wita? What I hate working no. with? Boneless, skinless chicken breast. Ah. Without a doubt. I can't, I, stand bun- I can't stand boneless, skinless chicken breast unless it's on a whole chicken and I'm boning it and skinning it for a mm. specific purpose. But that's one of my like least favorite ingredients of what, do you have one Jonathan uh, that, I, I'm sitting here thinking about it, hoping I had more time to talk, <laughs> talk because I don't I was going to ask you your favorite too or what yeah, your well, last you, what your would, last supper might be so oh, you that's can, a good one you too. can back yeah. your way into least favorite by going most favorite oh I'm probably going to go kind of cliche with favorite I would I would definitely get a get the best chicken I could find probably from uh, Adam Barr and put a mm. brine on it. I would just do cast iron skillet fried chicken mm. and, and drink high life. Honestly, <laughs> drink, drink cheap that cold is so beer. Lame. I'm sorry. <laughs> that is the most hipsterish. Call <laughs> high life with that beautiful chicken. Oh man. No. <laughs> Uh-uh. It's been my beer for, since, well, since I was old enough to start buying beer. <laughs> well, oh. you have too taste, much of a There's a nostalgic twist for that beer. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I love that skillet fried, old-fashioned skillet fried chicken. So that's your favorite. All right, Mike, go for a favorite, or a least favorite. And then we're Jonathan. Well, I'd say least, least favorite. Um, and it's hard, you know, being a chef, like you're tasting and you're falling in love with all these ingredients, you know. Yeah, I think so most favorites harder than least so, favorite. I would say least favorite and as simple as dill. And <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. um, I just don't think it belongs in a lot of places. And, you know, and, it, and it belongs specifically in, in, in a lot of places, but um, yeah, I think that's my least favorite. It's not, it's not as universal and I don't know. But, it's such a fragile little thing. I, know, and, and, and I, I think like, it deserves, you know, it has a place. You know? It has a place. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not you know, for all you Dill fans out there, I apologize. So we'll, we'll distract you for a minute while, while, while Jonathan's still pondering. Um, or not. You don't have to Are you ready, Jonathan? The, uh, the, um, did you guys see, did you see, Weeder and Chris, the story that Sam Sifton wrote about this thing called Mississippi Roast? This is uh-uh. this is connected to dill actually, and the 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 reason is, Mississippi roast is is this thing which has like thousands and thousands of Pinterest you know pins and I'm gonna have um, to go and look at it now. And yet it started it it and yet so so Sam Sam Sifton discovered from talking to like Kathleen Purvis and Charlotte and all all kinds of um, a John Edgerton, he discovered that people who know all about Southern food have never heard of this thing. Um, it start a home cook put a chuck roast in a slow cooker and dumped a package of Hidden Valley Ranch dressing, dry. <laughs> there's the dill and a package of dry gravy mix and a stick of butter um, and two um, 
little green Italian peppers, and she cooked it for six to eight hours till it fell apart, and then other. It just has ha taken on a life of its own. So Sam Sifton took this, and of course overhauled the um, the commercial chemical inputs into you know you can make your own <laughs> things that taste like ranch dressing and put in there. So I was just I was just curious. Mm. I mean it, it's it's a it, it's a phenomenon. No. Um, Maybe it shouldn't be though. I know. <laughs> I, I'm making that tonight. I know. No. <laughs> oh. Sounds great. I what do you make? What's, what's for dinner? It's called it's called hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jonathan, least favorite. Least favorite came back around when she said, brought up pepper. Um, I really don't have any use for green bell peppers, um, mm. oh. especially the Kamau. I don't think they I'm taste kind of like with anything. You on that. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Like, I love all the other ones bring something to the table, but the green bell pepper to me tastes like just crunchy water. Water, yeah. yeah. And I love celery, but uh -huh. not, not the green bell pepper. Oh, I love celery, but I love it when it's grown in Kentucky, which is starting to happen. I know. It's, it's intense. Doing, that local celery is intense. We're doing like a lot it. of celery at Woodland Farm this year. Are That's you? Are our, you really? We're doing a couple of different varieties of celery. We're also doing parcel, which is like a parsley. It looks yeah. like parsley, but yeah. tastes, it tastes like celery. Like, celery. like so really intense. I've had Und some of Undercover? Those. Are they undercover? Uh, right now, we're going in the in the greenhouse, yeah. Uh -huh. Rona and I were lucky enough to get a tour of that farm, uh, like last year? Or was it last year that we went? A year or two ago. Yeah. 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 It was, it's so beautiful. Fantastic. Yeah. So you both get... Uh, a lot. It sounds like you're getting hogs and you're using lots of vegetables and things mm -hmm. from the farm. Yeah, so we're doing uh, hogs, bison, uh, chicken, eggs, and then anything we want in the ground, really. So, I don't really get it anymore. Uh, they can really... I, I get the proteins, but I don't get the produce anymore. I think they're pretty much at capacity dealing with one property. So I'm back to starting this season back to square one. Um, rebuilding the relationships and trying to but be going at the to the market. farmers yeah. market because and... that's got to be the way. I mean, we it was always Woodland Farm when I was there. Always Woodland Farm, and then I had my ten reliable weekly people. Right, when seasons were in, but you know most of those people are small, no more than two acres. So I lost my egg person. So it's like it really is a rebuilding right now over here. But luckily, so, people have been super great about. Oh it. yeah, well, so calling all egg people. Yes, I need farm mean, eggs. What do, you, what, what do you need the most? We'll put the, we'll put the I need out. I need at least five cases a week minimum. So wow. that's but that's the tough part. There's people that got eggs, but I can't do anything with two or three dozen eggs. I mm -hmm. need Todd I need, Clark. He's your man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I'll set you up with Todd's number after the show. Appreciate it. <laughs> I, I won't say it. I won't say it <laughs> on air. Everybody's gonna be calling this. Side uh, no, I've got a few guys. I have to rotate too because, uh, of course, eggs go in and out of season. But right yeah. now they're in season. For those of you wondering, it's egg season, so eat those local eggs. Um, okay. Well, we have a quick game, and then we're probably gonna be out of town. But can we play a little bit of this? Let's do. Okay. So. This is a word association game. It's a food word association game. So we're going to say an ingredient, and then you say the first ingredient that comes back to mind. Or it could be cooking preparation. So, like, you know, if I said chicken and you said fried, that'd be okay. Okay. I, I wasn't making fun of your fried chicken. Just your, what was it? My high life. High life. <laughs> your high life. Although coming from a Milwaukee's best tradition myself, I can't really throw any bombs that way. Okay. So it's spring. I was going to use ramps, but since you already did avocado toast, I'm not doing that. So fiddlehead ferns. Peas. Yeah, that's good. 
Yeah. Um, I was going to say pork because we're getting ready to pair up some fiddlehead ferns with a new pork dish on our menu. So. Oh, okay. See, I'm writing my menu, my spring menu here on the uh, show. <laughs> <laughs> you may notice some strong similarities. <laughs> oh, that's awful. Okay. So uh, we'll say cornmeal. Cornbread. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was right on par with you. <laughs> cornbread. cornbread. <laughs> Sorghum. That's not fair to make Mike do all these Kentucky ones because he's like... <laughs> no, that's fair. Uh, I, w- I would say brine. We do a sorghum brine duck at the restaurant. So Ooh. my, my, uh, my f- goes straight to where my current menu is, I guess. But I love that. Sorghum brine duck. <laughs> John. Uh, pancakes. Like, like pancakes? Oh. And sorghum. Mm. And bourbon? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh that's your that's new word. Right <laughs> <laughs> he just yeah. looked at me and said, yes. Sorghum bourbon. I was like, uh-huh, yeah. Uh, barrel bourbon, barrel yeah. proof. <laughs> uh, meats, please. Meats. <laughs> what do you do with bourbon on your menu? I, nothing. I, I don't honestly You're not right now. With it. I, I feel like, and I'll say that I have nothing for or against, like good or bad about it. But the first couple of restaurants I worked in in Kentucky, it was so all over the place. There were so, bourbon glazes and all these different things happening with it. It's all over the desserts. Uh, it's just kind of, of played out for me. Like, I feel like, I mean, and I still love to use country ham and uh, sorghum and all that kind of stuff, all those big hit Kentucky items, but right now I just prefer drinking it. And honestly, <laughs> I've got the bug real bad for, like, good bourbon lately. Like, I've been exploring, and uh, I, I don't know why I lived here for almost eight years before I really, really started exploring bourbon. But, mm. um, yeah, I just drink it right now and pair it. And just drink so it and pair it. <laughs> okay, Mike, what about you? Um, we're using a lot of the products of it, to be honest. Like we, uh, yeah, we got paired up with a cooperage who's been shipping down barrels and we've been smoking with smoking it. Smoking barrel barrel staves mm. are wonderful for yeah. that. And we even like we did a d- dinner up in Cleveland with Jonathan Sawyer, and we were taking the barrel staves and plating our charcuterie on it and yeah. like, walking it out to the table and stuff. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, we also recently got a, a full, oh sorry, an empty uh, pappy barrel from Julian and Preston. Uh-huh. Um, so we didn't know what to do with this elusive, you know, <laughs> grand full, barrel. Sorry. Pappy Van Winkle. Oh, that's a slip of the tongue there. Oh, we <laughs> got a full, I mean, empty, sorry. Sorry, um, empty barrel of pappy Van <laughs> <laughs> So we've been trying to figure out what to do with this barrel to, you know, kind of like uh, give it the the uh, the legacy that it deserves. So we think we're going to do um, a pappy Van Kraut. And do oh, um, yeah. do some barrel aged uh, sauerkraut in the barrel. So that sounds um, so we're great. have a lot of fun doing that for sure. That sounds really good. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, thank you to you both really for coming, and it's been a pleasure to get to know you and yeah. talk and talk food and yeah, and steal your thoughts for Wita's <laughs> uh, menu. Well, I had a, a question. You guys, you, your restaurants are eighty miles apart, basically 80, 85 miles apart. Do you does twenty one C want to create sort of a reminiscence between restaurant like do i want to go to proof and think of lockbox i mean are there similarities woven in to the restaurants on a corporate level like is it is it or or you guys stand alone can jump in on your own? i i no honestly and with that that's why i work here because i could never be uh a hotel chef in the traditional sense um it's total creative freedom like i don't really i mean every once in a while there's something if i wanted to go crazy with something i might have somebody um be like hey let, let's talk about that at least but oh i mean my my food's nothing like my i love mike's food and we don't cook the same way really and 
the chef in Durham was just in last night, and he none of us really cooked the same at all. Yeah. So I, I kind of take pride in the fact that I think that you're going to get a completely different, almost freestanding restaurant kind of vibe from each of our yeah. properties. And what, what do you want people to mostly say when they're going telling other people? I mean, is there a dish you want to be your signature dish or a, a, an approach that you hope will be... The brand, you know, the the informal brand associated with Proof and Lockbox, each of you. Uh, I I don't I don't have a dish. Um, people ask that actually going into it, like, what do you think? What do you think? Like your dish is going to be like? I would be fine if nothing ever stays. Mm -hmm. um, I want it to be more about the experience. Experience more people knowing that they can come in and trust that they're going to get well prepared, responsibly sourced things that are helping stimulate the local economy. I just want to be over a couple of years to be a part of the community, uh, be a place where you know that you can trust to come for good service and good food and drink and that we're holding ourselves to a high standard to take care of you, honestly. Good. Yeah, I mean, and I agree with that. I don't think that, you know, when you really need to be uh, held accountable to like a certain dish or anything like that, I think it's more exactly what he said, just being, sourcing them and being, you know, so many people use farm to table as a hashtag yeah. and don't actually live the lifestyle. So I'd like to be known for like the restaurant that's yeah. like actually d using farm to table. We have our own sustainable farm and we're doing all these things that, um, that we can be proud of, you know, and like really putting that, they walk away, you know, breaking bread and having a great meal, but they're more excited about coming back and trying something new the next time, mm -hmm. not necessarily coming back for the same thing mm -hmm. day in and day out, you know? So, yeah. um, that's and that's, with our restaurant, we have, you know, we're very chef driven and that's why they're individual and that's why, you know, you can go to each one and have a different experience. You know? One one thing I've always loved it at Proof, I haven't gone to Lockbox yet because I was waiting for the dust to settle. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to come, but I want to just come on a quiet time, but it's the charcuterie though. The charcuterie at Proof has been there since day one and it's gotten progressively better and better. I'm anxious now. I say this because of Mike's story about his... Finocchio Salumi, right? Yep. That you just uh, were so eagerly awaiting. So, I'm. Uh, are you going to put that on the menu? That's one of my questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you get uh, a tasting of no, that? No, it just hit the menu. So, yeah. um, and that's one of the things. You know, 21C does this great job of taking these old buildings and preserving them. And you know, at Proof, we got really lucky where they preserved an old tobacco warehouse. Right. So um, down in the basement, we were we were able to have these like great catacombs with great uh, moisture and humidity levels and things like that. So. We can do these great charcuterie projects that can bleed into the menu and that we get super proud of, you know. So, um, and it takes it takes great time, but it's also a great reward. So yeah, and it's been a hallmark of the menu, and I'm eager to see what you've done with it. So Absolutely. I'll be up there next next month. Sounds great. <laughs> For the week of Derby, May third. <laughs> we look forward to it. Thank you both so much, and I think we're going to take a quick station identification yes. and. Come back with a special announcement. And one more shift. And one more shift is going to join us. <laughs> All right, let's do the museum piece. LSP and Jerry Lee, the big old but not the big three. Gather dust and uncrust in Cleveland. Everybody bows down to them. No one looks and says you they did let's kill a new band. Yeah. 
We're here on Hot Water Cornbread Kentucky Food Radio on Lexington Community Radio. We've this has been the um, the afternoon of the chefs. Um, <laughs> I'm true. here with Chef Wita Michael and Chef Chris Michael, and we had uh, chefs Jonathan Searle and Mike Vida with us from uh, 21C Hotel Restaurants. And now we have Chef Dan Wu. Um, Dan Woo-hoo. Wu here in Lexington, woo-woo, is going, he has a really intriguing event coming up this weekend, and at, we're getting ready to tell you about several events. But we're going to have Dan begin and tell you what's happening. What is this house party anyway? Uh, so, you know, every year for eons now, the UK Art Museum has had their Art in Bloom uh, fundraising events every spring. Uh, and then more recently, in the last couple of years, uh, Stuart Harodner, the new um, director of the UK Art Museum, and I became fast friends, and he's really trying to shake things up a little bit. So every yeah. year, we're trying to do something a little bit different, uh, in addition to sort of your standard Art and Bloom um, parties and fundraisers. So this one is called House Party. It's going to be at the Carrick House uh, on Saturday night. and This week. This, this Saturday. This Saturday this night. Saturday. Uh-huh. Uh, on the 9th, which happens to be my birthday. Uh-huh. Oh, happy birthday. Yeah, so I'm, I'm spending my birthday semi-working, semi-playing. Uh, and the idea is to turn the Carrick House into sort of like the most artsy house party you've ever been to. Like you're going to a friend's house, but your friend happens to be, you know, world-renowned artists and interesting people. So <laughs> they're going to be, they're gonna, exactly, they're going to be DJs and uh, Makers Marks and uh, West Six doing some drinks. They're going to be 3D printers, arcade games. They're going to be live painting, live art. Uh, there's a young Rubik's Cube champion who's apparently from either Lexington or from Kentucky mm-hmm. who's going to be there showing off his crazy, ridiculous Rubik's skills. Um, <laughs> so it's just like every room you walk into, there's going to be interesting stuff. Um, the way I got involved with it is uh, when Stuart started talking to me about the idea, he said, uh, I want to do something with TV dinners. And I said, oh, my God, TV dinners. I've been wanting to do something thematically with TV dinners for a long time, and I just didn't have the right venue or the right, right. event for it. So what I thought up was to take your typical sort of three-compartment TV dinner tray and take three very sort of old school stayed, kind of boring, like 50s TV dinner foods. Like Salisbury steak. Yeah, so <laughs> what we're doing is we're going to do fried chicken, mm. mashed potatoes, and that like frozen vegetable medley of uh-huh. carrots, um, <laughs> carrots, peas, and corn. Yeah, right? yeah. But what we're doing is we're kind of flipping it on its head. So instead of mashed potatoes, we're going to do Duchess potatoes which are kind of like mashed potatoes mixed with uh, egg yolks, butter, and cream, and then you whip them into these nice little beautiful dollops and you bake them off. Mm-hmm. And I'll probably throw some Parmesan in there. Uh, for the vegetable medley, we're going to do um, corn, but it's going to be Peruvian popcorn. Uh-huh. We're going to toss that with a little bit of cotilla and roast that. We're going to do homemade wasabi peas. 
Uh, and then for the carrots, we're going to take uh, chickpeas and roast them with uh, cumin and turmeric and give them that bright orangey sort of color. So at a glance, it looks like that medley. <laughs> and then you grab it and it's like a, it's like a trail mix. Oh, how it's cool. It's like crunchy little snacks. And then I've enlisted our It sounds Mar- like the ultimate trail mix. It sounds really yeah, yummy. Yeah. Right? Much better, it, much it, better it than It could work. Mix, yeah. I could maybe yeah. like... Yeah. Gourmet trail mix. We could, we could bag it and sell it. Uh, and then I recruited... Uh, Everybody's favorite baker, Martine, Martine yeah, Holzman gosh, of yes. Martine's. Uh, she's going to do the dessert slash entree. And we came up with doing a chicken drumstick made <laughs> out of Rice Krispie Treats, white chocolate, and crushed cornflakes. Oh, wow. So it'll look like a drumstick <laughs> so on the outside. It looks like a drumstick. You pick it up, and it's your dessert. Oh, I love this. So, so it's a whole thing of surprises. But now, unfortunately, you've told everybody. That's all right. That's it's still okay. going to be, you know, my, my thing is... Uh, I like surprises on different levels. Even after telling you this, like, now you want to go see what that stuff is about. That is such a neat idea. I love the playfulness of turning a TV dinner on its head like that. It's a really cool idea. I love, for me, like, uh, number one in food is taste. But a very, very close second is the idea of surprise Mm. and the idea of flipping ideas on their heads and expectations on their heads and just go, whoa, that's not what I was expecting. and. You know? Yeah. I love I love surprise, too. I'm trying to get better at it. I'm not the best. That's not one of my strong suits, actually, in cooking and surprise. But. To, to surprise people or to be surprised yourself? Uh, it's hard to surprise me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but, no, to surprise people. I don't think of when I'm constructing a menu, I don't think, oh, surprise. You know, I want a surprise. Mm-hmm. But well, I'm trying to more because I, mean, I think I think important. another virtue, and this is probably the, the one that your place, all of your places uh, offer, Wita, is... Um, um, consistency and trust, trustworthiness, <laughs> you know, which is, is really kind of the opposite and is also a wonderful, it's a wonderful I, virtue too. I think, I think, I think it's a hard balance to, to well, make. You can't attempt surprise till you have consistency. I think exactly, that's there we go. Exactly. So, and, and and I one think, may be a building block of another, but. Well, you and I, in some ways, like uh, our, our vocations, even though we're both chefs, they're almost polar opposites because yeah. you run sort of established brick and mortar restaurants where people come to expect a certain thing right, right, you know right. uh for the most part and i've had sort of the, the the privilege of bouncing around and doing these sort of little mercenary gigs and doing pop-ups and doing private dinner parties for people where most of the time i don't give them a menu until they're finished with their dinner <laughs> like i tell them you know like okay i'm gonna go with this theme or this sort of thing and then they have no idea what they're getting into until i present them so i have that sort of privilege of surprise i love that um, though. i think it's very difficult to really do it right to combine a restaurant restaurant with that constant element mm. of surprise i think it can be done but it's tough well yeah. both such great features of food food is such a wonderful um, yeah, it's elastic in that way. Yeah, yeah. like like a you know blank blank uh, screen. Well, mm-hmm. so that is this coming Saturday night. Yes. Yep. On so, Dan's birthday. On yeah. Oh, and also it's Martine's birthday. How about that? Oh, that is hysterical. And I, I recruited her uh, to this event before I knew it was her birthday. So I'm not sure if she's going to be available to come or if she has other uh, you know. You two are like dinner. two of my favorite people, and you have the same birthday. It that must be an so, important food day. That yes. must be. Exactly. Yes. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah, well, it's a good day. We, and we, we thank you for coming to, to tell us about this. Oh, absolutely. Um, Thanks for Dan, having me. And Dan has the Culinary Evangelist radio show here on Lexington Community Radio on Wednesdays at 3. 
And you want to tell us who your guest will be tomorrow? Sure. Uh, tomorrow, I'm breaking my show into two. So I've got two guests. I've got uh, Renata West Riley from Lexington Diner mm-hmm. coming in to tell us what she's up to. And she's always up to something. <laughs> uh, and then let's see. Who's my second guest? It's uh, Brian Richardson, the butcher from Whole Foods. Uh, oh, cool. I believe the first butcher I'll have uh, have had on the show. So that would be a really interesting uh, Yeah. That'll uh, be really as well. Yeah. yeah. Good good stuff. No, <laughs> Sophia's shaking her head. Who have I had? Have I had you another? Had, like, a female butcher, oh, I had um I had uh Jerry Cooper and uh Dina Johnson from Cooper Brothers. Well, Neither of them are technically butchers. They own the butcher shop. That's so what you're thinking of. We haven't even introduced Sophia, but hi and bye, Sophia. <laughs> <laughs> Aloha, you mean. <laughs> Aloha. Um okay, thanks. We appreciate your being here. We're going to add just a couple of other food events, and we're just going to take us out with a really, really um, Mushroom. fungusy uh, <laughs> food safety tip. So, um, very big news this week was in the food world is that the Appalachian Food Summit is coming to Berea this fall, Berea, Kentucky. It's going to be at Berea College. We'll let you know much more about that eventually, but just just a heads up: September 16 to 18. Um, this Thursday is a special event at the University of Kentucky, a, a public food symposium on building a campus-wide multi-stakeholder initiative. That's going to be from 3 to 6, I believe, at the ES Goodbarn, where there is parking. Um, and do note that the Lexington Farmer's Market is now officially open with many, many growers <laughs> downtown at the uh, Cheapside Pavilion, 7 to 2 on Saturdays. And Sunday Market is also open on Southland mm-hmm. Drive, 10 to 2. With ramps. There's With ramps. ramps. Look, for, look for Lonnie from Hoodell Holler. Um, and finally, our next guest next week will be Ann Bell Stone from Elmwood Stock Farm. And now let's hear about some mushrooms. And Anne's going to challenge us with, with, with cooking challenges. So we haven't done food safety in a little bit because we were gone last week and we've been talking our heads off. But it's mushroom season. It's coming on us. The first spring mushroom, the famous spring mushroom, is the morel mushroom. And so I wanted to give a couple of tips. First of all, when you buy the regular mushrooms in the store, uh, they are packed in these special containers, and it's a good idea to leave them in there when you can because it helps the mushroom stay moist but also breathe a little bit. So they're typically packed very well when they come from the store. If you're going to move them out of that package, the best way to keep them is in a partially open Ziploc bag. Mushrooms don't do well completely closed up. They have a little gas that they give off that can kind of cause them to, to spoil earlier and maybe maybe get you maybe cause an upset stomach. Um, for wild mushrooms, right now is the beginning of morel season. It needs to warm up a little bit more, probably in the next three weeks. <clears throat> I just wanted to let everybody know that morels are prevalent in Kentucky, and they're delicious. A couple of tips. One, there are false morels. I encourage you to go online and look at pictures. Don't pick mushrooms yourself. Yeah. Well, if Ever. You, if you, go with someone who go, knows. Go with someone who knows. <laughs> but if you're looking for morels and you think you see one, if it's red or dark in color, don't pick it. It's probably not a real morel. And if you slice it open and it doesn't have the little hollow tube, it's not a real morel. Don't eat it. It could make you very, very sick. Um, but there are a lot of morels for purchase that you can get uh, online and at grocery stores and 
And um, a lot of times people ask me, the big confusion is, can you wash mushrooms? Here's the bottom line. Harold McGee and On Food and Cooking and Cooks Illustrated, have all, they've all done a lot of testing on washing mushrooms. You can wash mushrooms in water if they have not been cut. The way I do it is I take a standing bowl of uh, cold water, I plunge the mushrooms in, and I shake them off very, really well. So you're doing it very quickly, getting all the stuff off of them, and then laying them out on towel right away and kind of drying them up a little bit. So you, it's not a bad idea to wash mushrooms. They are grown in a um, manure that's been treated, but they, it isn't a bad idea to wash them quickly. Uh, there were studies that show they're already 80% water, so they only take on another a six ounce portion of mushrooms would only take on another quarter ounce of water being washed in water if you have not cut it right if you have not cut it if yeah. you if you've cut it then you're 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 in big trouble all right <laughs> with that scary note we are going to say goodbye for this week I do, I do believe. I'm morally yours. Morelli yours. Morelli yours. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, My Sophie. favorite food. Morelli. Bye, Dan. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Sophie, Dan. Bye, Chris. Bye, Vida. Bye, Rona. <laughs>